0: Welcome to Coffee with Curtis, your home for quality business conversation. Hey everyone, I'm Robert Curtis, welcome to the show. Joining me today is Sarah Dre. Sarah is a businesswoman and a linguist. As the CEO of Dre Translations, Israel's leading legal translation service, Sarah works with law firms here and around the world to bring people and businesses together when more than one language is involved in their dispute or contract or litigation. A qualified lawyer at the Israeli Bar Association, Sarah used her legal knowledge to build her company. Sarah, welcome to Coffee with Curtis. How are you?
1: Thank you very much. I'm great. So um, honored to be here.
0: Well, what can I say? This has been uh, something we've been wanting to get on the calendar and talk Absolutely. all things language. <laughs> <laughs> <Very> <laughs> so. Let's dive in and first of all, talk about language as a, a you know high-level concept. First of all, you must love languages. What languages do you speak and any favorites?
1: Um, I was born into a family that spoke many languages. Um, my mom's side of the family speaks Spanish. My dad's side of the family speaks French. Uh, I grew up in Hebrew school in America. So from <laughs> early ages, it was just, a lot of languages happening at the same time um and i definitely think that that set the stage for my future per uh, you know profession um i yeah i've always been i've always loved language it's always been something that i've connected to and invested you know time and energy in
0: but did you did you use those languages as a kid? Were you speaking to your mom in French and your dad in another language or um, using English in another way, or were they sort of, I guess, academically known, but not functionally known?
1: So it was the opposite. It was very functional and very not academic. I could speak to my grandparents in French and Spanish and compliment the food and say, you don't need to give me more meatballs in Spanish, (laughs) but you know, (laughs) other things would have been harder. I don't think I would have been able to negotiate very well um, or speak at a high level. And even now they're a little rustier. It really takes practice to maintain them. I don't think that they're, uh, they're up to par at the moment, but, um, uh,
0: you know, it's interesting with languages. I always find that, I mean, I'm terrible at languages, although I learned French and German at school up until like 16 years old, I can't remember them particularly. Maybe that's just because, you know, we never really use them beyond the classroom, but I find that here in Israel, where again my Hebrew is pretty shocking, um, it's brilliant when it comes to anything to do with food. So you just reference the meatballs there. That's I find funny. that people want to, you know, when it comes to food, we've got the language <laughs> down pat. <laughs> we
1: know what we know what we want to say. Yeah,
0: yeah, exactly, exactly. What What does language mean to you, though? Uh, I guess uh, you know you've built a company on this and. We'll, we'll get into the nuts and bolts of how you built that and the work that you do. But talk to me a little bit about the power of language and why it is actually so important.
1: Well, to me, um, especially in this field, I have a very comprehensive understanding that language is everything. Uh, language can build or burn bridges. And being able to communicate effectively is, I think, one of the most important skills a person can have. Um, When it comes to translation in particular, you're effectively handing off that responsibility to another party. So you're asking somebody to convey for you what you're trying to say or your message. And that is a task that we don't take lightly. We definitely understand the significance and the weight of trying to convey someone's message for them, trying to portray the quality of their work to another party. It's a really crucial step in a bigger process when it comes to transactions or sales or marketing. I mean, all of somebody's work is being handed to you to manipulate in order to convey to the reader, the viewer, the end party. So, you know, it's a heavy job. It's something that we take very seriously.
0: And look, ultimately, you know, we reference food there a little bit tongue in cheek. It's not like uh, translating a menu, which, you know, yes, should still be translated correctly. Mm-hmm. There's a huge element of trust that you reference there in the work that you do. Uh, you're working in a sensitive, you know, area that has, you know, serious legal ramifications, if God forbid if it was wrong. So Absolutely. I guess that plays a big role in the work that you do.
1: Yeah, I think that the reader um, makes a direct association. They don't always know that the work has been translated. So when they read something, they that's what they understand um, as far as the quality goes. So even when you read a menu that's mistranslated, you like aren't sure if you want to order that, you know, it's like it's a question mark. So the reader doesn't always know. Um, And yeah, it's extremely important (laughs) to make sure it's done
0: right. do you think that language, or shall we, shall we put it a different way, the advancement of localization has changed over the last, like, 10, 15 years? Um, I mean, obviously, from a, I guess, consumer or low level, we have, you know, Google Translate, uh, yeah. which can be pretty shocking sometimes. But, uh. um, you know, has have you seen the change in trends around needing to, um, I guess, provide sales marketing collateral legal documents in other languages or has it always existed because business was always international and actually you needed to provide this
1: no i don't i don't think it's always been the way it is i think that localization has had an extreme upward trend and um, people are realizing how silly it sounds often when things aren't properly localized i remember my first few years in israel it was maybe 15 years ago (laughs) laughing at the bus stops. You know, there was like a Snickers ad and it had just a bunch of random English words like strewn around the ad, like happy, fun, party, Snickers, and it was just so weird. And, you know, I thought to myself, Snickers as a reputable company or a big brand should know better than to kind of create this funny looking, strange, unlocalized um, ad. So, that's what everybody. I think by now everyone knows they need to avoid that. It's not a good look. Um, it's just so worth the investment in localization and translation and making sure that your target audience is going to understand what you're trying to say. So I think it's different. I think it's becoming much more popular, much more valuable, valued now.
0: Look, I think for people like uh, you know me, for example, um, you know just at the amateur level of any language understanding um the apps and the and sort of consumer language learning has probably opened up that field even more um you know with duolingo and Babel yeah, and all of the other ones it. out there yeah. this idea of having and acquiring more knowledge for that internalized internationalized world is is uh, is is key so i guess what you're talking about really is new markets right is that is that what you're you're, you're heading to here
1: Um, Absolutely. I think that another aspect of the value of translation is, you know, if I were to ask you, what's the price that you would put on new opportunities or opening up to new markets, I think most people would say that that's kind of priceless. I mean, you're taking a product that has a finite um, offering and you're expanding it potentially infinitely. What you have in one language can be made available to so many markets, so many places, so many customers. And, um, Handling that process smoothly is uh, not always easy, but super important. And I mean, I really, truly think that it's valueless. I mean, it's just, there's no price on on uh, what you can accomplish when you expand your offering.
0: I think it's part of the wider trend, to be honest with you. We spoke about this before coming on air that... Um, There's obviously, quite rightly, been a trend towards accessibility that people who can't access, particularly the Internet, um, in a way that you and I can, uh, whether it's because they are deaf or they're blind or they have other disabilities, we need to make it accessible. not only is it the right thing to do, it's also good business. Um, this is a market that is open to to you to sell more to people that would want your services. Um, I guess the same can be said around language that, you know, maybe it's not in the same way considered, you know, accessibility or disability. But it's 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 opening up new markets that you didn't have before. Totally. I think well, the sorry, go ahead.
1: No, I going to say it's like becoming easier than ever. I think that the technological trends are fantastic. Um, most people know by now that you can open Google Translate on your phone and translate an image or a picture or a menu in real time. And so these things really are coming along very quickly and making things way more accessible for everybody.
0: So if we just. Go higher up the food chain in the world that you're working in within, you know, legal services and providing translation. Um, what areas are you particularly working across? Um, and how does that work? I mean, you, we have, you know, cases that are being pursued in English, presumably is the, probably the top international language, I would imagine. Um, and then it, it flows into other languages from there. How, talk us through that. What's the journey? Okay
1: interestingly um my most of the work that my company does at trade translations we translate a lot of hebrew into english so we our clients are israeli law firms and they represent international clients that are caught up usually in litigation or more optimistically are acquiring a new business in israel or pursuing new horizons and um they require us to translate the work that they prepare, either for the court or for local purposes, uh, for their end clients in abroad, wherever that might be. So um, I would say a lot of it is litigation, and a lot of the work that we do is translating, you know, pleadings that are going to be filed with the Israeli courts, so that the headquarters or the legal team outside of Israel can review it and can even just keep tabs on what's going on here.
0: What's the uh, what's the I guess um, focus on non English languages that come into that? If you're if you're starting from a Hebrew perspective and then working outwards, are you working with clients not in English as well?
1: Yeah, uh, most of it is Hebrew to English. Um, we have French and Spanish, a bit of Chinese that comes through Italian, but those are um, very minor compared to the English. Most, even you know, we have like there's a huge case going on in Ukraine. It's the translation's not being translated into Ukrainian. It's being translated into English. So even though the parties are Ukrainian, they're reading the English. Uh so it's amazing the power
0: of English still being the ultimately the connecting glue to all language.
1: Absolutely. I mean translation into English is also cheaper. Um it's easier to find uh you know well qualified Hebrew English translators. It's easier Than to find Hebrew with a a less common, you know, language.
0: So So you've built this company, Dre Translations, you've got your name on the door. Um, What does that mean to you to put your own name on the front of it, I think, first of all? And then tell us about the 10-year journey, because you've built a pretty impressive company. What does it look like today?
1: Uh, yeah so it is our 10 year anniversary this month I still haven't figured out how I'm celebrating I'm so overwhelmed by mm. this milestone I wasn't always straight translations were formerly uh, linguistic translations we spent the first seven years as linguistic mm. um yeah it wasn't interestingly it wasn't localized it did not sound good in Hebrew linguistic everyone was like thinking that that means I'm a female linguist. Like, Oh, you're a linguist, which is like the feminine suffix for a word. So it didn't. So we rebranded.
0: To um, me, it sounds like pasta, a type of pasta.
1: See, another <laughs> another minus for linguist. Um, so yeah, it's been, it's been a journey. Um, I've definitely learned a lot of things, um, grit, resilience, riding the waves, Um, appreciating seasons, you know, anticipating that things come and go and just kind of being okay with that. Um, At one point we had in-house translators, which I thought was a great idea until I realized that it wasn't. So it's been a journey, (laughs) it's been fun. Um, I wouldn't trade it for the world. I'm very, very happy with my choices and um, I have an amazing team that I love to work with and who I trust and we have amazing freelance translators that we work with, who we really, really trust. So, um, it's been fun.
0: How big's the, uh, freelance, uh, panel tra- of translators now?
1: Believe it or not, we have about 50 freelance translators that wow. we work with very regularly. Like, yeah, it's, it's really grown.
0: So cool. And, and you decided to put your name on the front door, as I said, that you made that transition from Linguistic to trade Translations. What, what prompted putting your name on the front door? That's a big statement.
1: It was a big statement. And I think after seven years of, um, you know, the journey, I was able to definitely say I own the quality. I can put my name on it. I will stamp it. <laughs> I'm an attorney. I have paid my dues. I know what I'm talking about um I yeah I think that it was a credibility thing I mean it really is like my name on the door like you said I guarantee the quality um I really really stand behind our product so we serve all the biggest firms in the country um which has been an amazing accomplishment as well
0: Amazing! Amazing! Congratulations. I guess it's also like the like the law firms themselves. I mean, you're playing to that market. They often put the partners' law, you know, names oh, on sure. the door. Um, and there's an there comes back really to that element of trust that we discussed at the beginning. That um, you know, if your name's there, it means something. It means that you're putting your personal reputation behind the work that you're doing.
1: Mm-hmm. Very cool.
0: Pretty. <laughs> but you you weren't all you weren't always supposed to do this, right? So you were originally in law school, you qualified as a as a lawyer here in Israel. Um talk us through the journey of doing that and then moving to here.
1: Oh boy. Um <laughs> Yeah. I had a good number of years working in a law firm. I spent well, a good it was three years. I spent three years working in a law firm, which felt like a long time. Um I learned a lot. Um uh, It was pretty grueling. Uh, I remember coming home and posting on Facebook, like, you know, I had my first 12 hour day and a lawyer friend commented, oh, you're only working half, like half the day. (laughs) I mean, the expectations were through the roof and I wasn't seeing um, the return at the time. I really wanted to see the direct correlation for my effort. So transitioning into freelancing was really rewarding because you're literally getting paid for the work that you put in word by word, minute by minute, whatever it is. So in that sense, I loved it. Um, I loved regaining control of my time and my vacation days. Um, eventually I realized it's a bit of a double-edged sword. Now, you know, the amount of time I've gained being self-employed is definitely matched by the amount of personal things I've had to cancel because of the <laughs> emergencies and putting out fires and whatever it is. But, um, But yeah it was an interesting trade-off i kind of i kind of remember feeling like i remember turning down a job in a law firm and just feeling like i was staring at like a big ocean and i had no idea where this was going to take me but here we are
0: and i'm i you know you should never ask a lady her age but you know if you started this business 10 years ago you were young and i guess that was a big challenge
1: uh, yeah, I was very, I was pretty young. I mean, I was definitely the youngest person in law school. I, in Israel, most people go to law school after I've served in the army and traveling and working. So they're starting at like 27, 28, I was 18. So <laughs> I was the baby of the class by far. And then you can do the math. I mean, I graduated about four years later, started the business close to then and, uh, and here we are. So Amazing. yeah, I've been the youngest. Yeah,
0: a lot. You mentioned some of the challenges and some of the rewards there. I mean, you would you would how would you, uh, I guess, give people inspiration wanting to uh, go and do something that they have a passion for, that they believe that they can make into a business, but actually they're either young or they just, whether, whether they're young or not, they want to break through the unbreakable wall, as they say, to go th- to get to the other side of it. What's your advice for people?
1: I would just say trudge on. It was a definite uphill battle. Um, I had such condescending conversations that I never asked for. I would go to networking events and have people say, oh, you have a company that is so cute. No. <laughs> and I'd like, it, is its it cute? Or I had a woman once tell me that if like I Like a little wanted,
0: handbag. Isn't that so cute?
1: Isn't that adorable? <laughs> it was something like that. Wow. So, and then a woman told me if anyone ever wanted to take me seriously, I needed to raise the pitch of my voice because I sounded like a child Wow! and I was, I didn't sound credible at all. Those things were, they really hit hard. Like it was hard to come back from those things and power ahead, but you know, deadlines needed to be met. So I kept going and thankfully this is a business where there's a lot of, you know, tight deadlines, a lot of repeat business. And it kind of kept me moving forward, but yeah, I would say, forget the haters, do what you gotta (laughs) do, (laughs) learn how to toot your own horn, learn how to stand up for yourself and take credit for your success. Um, I spent a lot of time saying, oh, I got lucky, or this fell into my lap, or whatever it was, until I realized, no, I really worked, I really worked hard. I could show you piles of flashcards that I had made in law school, every word, flashcards, like, I mean, thousands. so, and
0: presumably, you were doing the translations yourself in those early days.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. But even just you know reading my homework, <laughs> learning legal Hebrew from nothing, um, it was it was a lot of work. And learning how to take credit for that and own your experience um, is important. And it, that didn't come naturally to me.
0: So cool. So cool. <laughs> It's uh, I really think what you said about tooting your own horn is actually really true. I can't remember where I saw this, but this idea of, you know, start clapping for yourself because actually people then start clapping with you um, and no one else is going to start clapping for you usually. I
1: really started to believe that recently. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And uh, look, I see it, you know, you're on LinkedIn and you're posting and giving all the advice and the stories and the information. And it, it has a, it has an impact. I mean, how's that been for you with the sort of, I guess, change in promoting yourself in a way that perhaps isn't traditional marketing, traditional advertising, but telling the story, building a personal brand. Uh,
1: it's been, it's been difficult. I mean, it's fun, but it's challenging. Um, a lot of us, These days working in tech are very comfortable behind a screen. It's a really safe, quiet, lonely place to be if that's how you want it to be. So you can totally lose yourself behind the screen and just do your work and call it a day. Um, It takes a lot of guts, I think, to put yourself out there, put a face to the work, start to talk about yourself, start to put out personal stories. I call it the cringe hump. There's like this, you type a post and you're like, oh, God, this is so cringy. I don't know (laughs) if I should say this in public to people. And then you have to just cross the cringe hump, press post or schedule in advance and forget that you are going to post it. And it's rewarding. At the end of the day, it really resonates with people. People um, have expressed that it's inspired them and that. They think about it, they take it home, they're learning from it. And at the end of the day, I'm glad that I've started to put myself out there more and build a personal brand and say this is kind of the Sarah behind retranslations.
0: Translations. It goes, again, what we were saying before about your your name being on the door. You're backing yeah. it up with telling the story of the, the, the person behind the name. Yeah. Have you seen actual work happen because of the, um, I guess, promotion across LinkedIn and other places?
1: Um, yeah, luckily, very quickly, I had a client. Mm-hmm. who Yeah, so that really helped be that helped motivate me. But maybe like, I would say three weeks after invested effort. Um, I had someone who I'd never spoken to before reach out and say, Hi, I'm a lurker. I love your posts on LinkedIn. Could we set up a call and talk about translation services, which I was like, Wow! Did I hit <laughs> the jackpot? Someone's asking me for a call. So, and it, it was an immediate project, and it's a great customer. So that was very motivating to have that kind of success right off the bat. I know that um, it would have been harder to keep pushing for it if I hadn't really seen that like positive feedback so quickly. But yeah, definitely, it's translated into into work.
0: Excuse the plan.
1: <laughs> exactly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the uh, <laughs> I I. I, I... <laughs> yeah, I think, I think though about, uh, you know, posting on LinkedIn, I think of myself, you know, I try and do it consistently. And yeah, there's that cringe worthy factor of like, should I post this? And I really? probably still have that almost every time I write something. And I sort of said in my brain, it's um, it's a mindset and uh, mindset change that you know you didn't grow up in England but you know fish and chips are a big part of British culture and they in the old days they would take the newspapers from yesterday and they would use the newspaper to wrap up the chips and the fish and the saying was well yesterday's news is today's fish and chip paper and I often think the same around LinkedIn that Once you've posted, it's the equivalent of yesterday's news and today's relationship paper that you posted. It went out there. Some people saw it. Whoever liked it, liked it. The lurkers saw it. And and if anyone hated it, well, that's their problem. And then you move on to the next one. No one's going to remember it other than you. Yeah,
1: that was a life lesson, I think. You know, you think that people care more about, (laughs) or people are more judgmental. But they're usually not. And I personally, when I... I'm scrolling on LinkedIn. I try to write kind comments and encourage people, and you know, just be put out some kindness and support. And I hope that people do the same.
0: Now, looking to the future, what is your, I guess, um, desire for where Dre translations heads? What's the uh, what's the game plan? Without sharing too much of the trade secrets, I guess.
1: Well, the industry is changing rapidly, which is very exciting and I'm on board. I think it's great. I am not resisting this change. I know a lot of uh, translation company owners are freaking out, very concerned about where ChatGPT GPT is taking the industry. Um, machine translation is not new, it's been around. I kind of think it will just better the output, and that's really what matters. I mean, I think that there are gonna be people who get on board very quickly and people who uh, don't get on board and don't incorporate it. Uh, it's probably gonna be two camps. Um, I haven't exactly decided where we're gonna fall right right now. <laughs> we're still playing with it, um, but I still think it's exciting and I still think it's progress and I still think that um, ultimately cost saving and resource saving is a good thing Businesses, I think it's going
0: to be great. Also, I think in your space, particularly, although you might be able to rely on AI-driven translations to some extent, once mm-hmm. you're dealing with litigation, contracts, disputes, who, you know, not not only a, who you're going to trust ultimately, you're not. Are you going to be able to sue? Jack, you know, Chat GPT, or <laughs> you know, where's the when it goes wrong? So, I guess there's always going to need that element for you know the the top layer of work that. You know you're working in um for, for for human interaction
1: absolutely in legal the stakes are just too high to take any chances uh in most cases so i think that if machine translation or chat gpt or ai comes into play there will still always need to be a human element um which will be a very highly skilled professional legal <laughs> translator who knows what they're talking about um and is able to you know Give a final stamp of approval onto the product or the output. Um, so yeah, it's it's an interesting niche to be in.
0: Well, look, Sarah, um, Coffee with Curtis is only available in English, but um, if it was to be available in other languages, I would be for sure coming to you to help us with that process. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's been an absolute joy having you on the podcast. Um, I've been learning about uh, the world of languages. Um, So thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to Coffee with Curtis. I hope you enjoyed it. Please follow or subscribe to get notified when I release future episodes.